Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and Ben McClanahan, our Lex writer. Also down the line from Westminster, we're joined by George Parker, our political editor. This week, we'll be discussing Brexit and the mounting sense of concern in the city over a potential no deal. We'll also be taking a look at RBS as Ewan Stevenson prepares to bow out as finance director. And finally, a look at UBS's second quarter results. First, though, to Brexit, uh, and we're joined by George Parker in Westminster. Thanks for joining us, George. It's been a pretty busy few weeks. Obviously, the white paper came out. Theresa May managed to kind of cobble together cabinet support for that through various parliamentary problems along the way, only for the chief Brexit negotiator in the EU, Michel Barnier, to rebuff the plan, certainly as far as financial services goes. What's your take on this? Why has it um, been rebuffed? And where do we go from here? Well, as you say, the the white paper that flowed from the Chequers meeting a couple of weeks ago now has sort of staggered into the summer commons recess battered and bruised and amended along the way by Jacob Rees-Mogg and some of the Eurosceptics, but basically more or less intact. Um, But getting this proposal past the cabinet and through the House of Commons is one thing. Getting it past Brussels is another thing. And as you alluded to there, Michel Barnier has been making some very pointed remarks about some of the contents of this white paper. In general terms, the EU has done what Theresa May asked it to do, which is to be constructive as far as possible, not to shoot it down immediately. Um, She knows that she's only got one shot at this and she needs to make sure that the EU engages positively with it. But Michel Barnier has asked really in a series of questions rather than a series of points, areas where he thinks there's a problem. And among the many areas where he thinks there's a problem, he still doesn't quite understand how Britain thinks it can have some of the advantages of being a member of the EU without some of the obligations. So, for example, how can have parts of the single market without free movement, without financial contributions, without full jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice? And in the area of financial services, where he was briefing European affairs ministers in Brussels last week, he basically said that still, despite the fact the government has come up with a weaker proposal than its original plan, it still amounts to an attempt by Britain, in his view, to try to tie the hands of European regulators to remove their autonomy and basically to put Britain on some sort of equal partnership with the EU, even after it leaves. At the risk of descending into euphemism here, basically what Theresa May came up with was something called an equivalence deal or enhanced equivalence, basically building on an EU provision whereby third countries agree to operate equivalent rules and regulations uh, as they apply to financial services. But what Theresa May was arguing for was that that deal should be enhanced, maybe make it a a more solid uh, agreement in terms of its cancellability, maybe add in other areas that aren't currently covered by equivalence directives. 
But Mr. Barnier, while in theory that should be kind of something they could work together on, sees concerning areas around, for example, Britain's uh, desire to get involved in the administration of this facility, which is essentially an EU facility. He sees this as meddling by Britain, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the original plan uh, put forward by the government, the Plan A, was this uh, plan called Mutual Recognition, which basically intended to keep Britain very closely locked into the single market, getting full access, and basically sort of having a mechanism where Britain and the EU would sit down together, arrange where necessary for rules to diverge, but with Britain having pretty much maximum autonomy to set its own rules within a given framework. Now, the EU shot that down immediately, as many people predicted it would. Plan B, is, as you say, is this new plan of what Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, calls enhanced equivalence. So this is building on the equivalence regime which the EU has with certain third countries, including the United States and Singapore. But the key thing from the EU's point of view is that the equivalence regime they have applies to third countries, and it's entirely within the gift of Brussels, whether it's granted or not. And famously, the European Commission can decide to cancel access to the single market via these regimes at 30 days' notice. In other words, the EU is in control of the process. And what um, Philip Hammond is proposing under Plan B, this enhanced equivalence regime, is that still there would be things like institutional dialogue, mediated solutions, reciprocal supervisory cooperation, which sounds to Brussels' ears exactly like Plan A, essentially, which is that Britain wants maximum access to the single market and wants some sort of dialogue or mechanism where the hands of the EU would be tied to a certain extent and would be influenced by what was being decided in Brussels, in, in London, I'm sorry. And I think that is totally unacceptable as far as the EU is concerned, where regulatory autonomy is the buzzword at the moment. A final word from you then, a predictive word, George, on where things go from here. Is this proposal dead in the water or is Mr Barnier partly playing games here as part of a negotiating tactic? Well, there are, this a negotiation, you'd expect him to take a hard line. I still think that where we are at the moment on financial services is probably not going to work with Brussels. And I think, frankly... If Britain is going to get some kind of pick-and-mix deal out of this, I think that financial services will be one of the sectors which is going to have to lose out most. If Britain is going to get access to the single market in goods and have the ability to restrict freedom of movement, the EU side is going to say, well, hang on a sec, where is the pain that Britain is going to suffer as a result of this deal? And frankly, the financial services sector, Britain's most successful industry, most successful export industry, I think will be one of the areas where the pain is going to have to be felt. And I think that's if Britain wants to deal in other areas, financial services are going to have to suffer. Now, there's a question about how versatile and adaptable the financial services sector will be. And I think the answer to that will be very adaptable. But nevertheless, I think the EU will want to inflict some pain on the sector as part of any deal. Well, that's a pretty worrying prospect as we head into the summer recess. I do hope you're wrong, George. Thanks very much. Let's move on to the second topic. I spoke recently to Ewan Stevenson, who is the outgoing finance director of RBS. And I started by asking him what he felt was the state of the bank, which at one point, of course, 10 years ago, was the world's biggest bailout. Where did it come to and where was it going? Yeah, we feel pretty good about where we are at the moment. I mean, as you've pointed out, it has been a difficult 10 years for us. I think we are almost there. The last significant event, obviously, is for us to pay a dividend. I would argue for some years, um, sort of retail commercial banking activities have been normalised. We've been earning very, very good profitability out of them. 
it's just been masked by a lot of conduct and restructuring charges and uh, costs of cleanup. We always knew, Ross and I, that when we got through that cleanup, what you'd have left is a very good underlying banking operation making good profits. That's the point that we've now arrived at. I think with that, balance sheet resilience has improved dramatically while I've been at the bank over the last four years. And we're very close to being back to that point where we should be able to comfortably pass a stress test and get back to being a good dividend payer to the market. Uh, We're not there yet, but I think those would be the final two acts. You're due to leave the bank by May 2019, sooner if circumstances allow. Do you think by the time you leave, RBS will be back being that significant dividend payer that you talk about? It it will take some time, I think, for us to get back to being a significant dividend payer. We'd like to start small, I think, and build up over time. I would certainly hope by the time we got to May next year uh, that we were back paying dividends. be very disappointed if that wasn't the case. Uh, And I think when we get to that point, that also, as we talked about before, opens up for the possibility of further privatisation, I think, as well, because... One of the constraints we've had with not paying dividends is it does restrict the universe of shareholders who uh, can and want to invest in us. One cloud hanging over all banks, certainly not just RBS, is that of Brexit. What do you make of the government's latest efforts to come up with a policy that they can go to Brussels with? Where are we going to end up? What, What do you want really um there's been a lot of talk about buzz phrases like mutual recognition and enhanced equivalence what are the merits of these arrangements and and how is rbs preparing for them well what we can prepare for is the worst set of outcomes so broadly we are preparing on the basis of a hard brexit occurring in march 2019 uh it's the only thing at this point that there is certainty around And if we're able to get uh, better outcomes, whether that's a longer period uh, before Brexit um, comes into effect or um, less of a dramatic impact in terms of things like the loss of passporting and the like in banking, that would be good. But the only thing we can plan for at the moment is March 2019. And so we're well advanced in terms of our Brexit planning. And where do you stand on these buzz phrases around uh, and, and with flexible definitions, I suppose, of things like mutual equivalence, sorry, mutual recognition and enhanced equivalence. But one uh, clear difference between uh, what people talk about with those terms is that, under one, the UK would have scope to diverge on rules from the EU27. And on the other, it would need to kind of stay broadly aligned. Are you for the idea of broadly, of alignment? because it would allow you to just follow one set of rules, essentially? Or do you think it's important that the UK has the ability to diverge? There's pros and cons with both approaches. I mean, it's, you know, there's clearly idiosyncratic issues that uh, apply to the UK and apply to the UK banks where some flexibility would be helpful. We have that today in terms of national discretion under some of the rules. You know, one of the complications is who's going to adjudicate how closely aligned people are once you go beyond things like mutual recognition on day one. It's sort of day two and onwards in terms of who's going to be the arbiter of all of that. So, I mean, some of these phrases sound very nice in concept until you get down into the detail of how they're actually going to be implemented. Well, let me bring in Nick here. 
you heard what Ewan Stevenson had to say. He spent the past few years as finance director of RBS, and it's been a, a pretty big rebuild, if you like. What's your assessment of both where RBS is and what Ewan Stevenson had to say about it? Ewan is unsurprisingly fairly optimistic about the state that his bank's in as he prepares to move on from it. And to be fair, he's not the only one. I mean, we had Moody's, the rating agency, last week upgraded all of its ratings on RBS and said explicitly that it, they thought they'd made substantial progress in fixing their balance sheet and um, stressed that their core businesses, like Ewan said, are very profitable. That said, it's still not likely to all be plain sailing ahead. Although RBS has dealt with most of its big conduct issues in terms of monetary cost with the settlement of that Department of Justice fine earlier this year, um, they've still got serious reputational issues to deal with, not least the came in for renewed criticism last week over the handling of compensation for customers at its old and disgraced restructuring unit. They talk about getting back to being a normal bank, but... Um, it's not that easy a time to be a normal bank in the UK at the moment. I mean, shares in RBS are down about 11% since the government share sale last month. Between global trade worries and Brexit-specific issues, there's still likely to be a lot of challenges ahead for them. I suppose that Brexit point is a crucial one, isn't it? RBS has kind of retrenched away from its global footprint to become far more of a British-focused bank. Just as the country starts to worry about the impact of Brexit, RBS becomes a proxy for the country. Yeah, and it's a similar issue to what Lloyds Bank, which was also obviously bailed out in the crisis and went through a similar restructuring, but it was a couple of years ahead. It's a similar position to them. They've kind of pulled back and are aware of the fact that a bet on those banks is a bet on Britain, which is something that you've got to be quite a brave investor to do at the moment. Although in RBS's case, they could be helped in that direction if they can get back to paying dividends, which was one of the other things that you and spoke about. Fingers crossed. Let's move on to our final uh, story of the day, uh, and we're joined by Ben McClanahan, uh, our Lex writer on banking. Ben, you've been taking a look at UBS's second quarter results. How have they done? Uh, pretty good. Uh, it's quite frustrating, as always, when, when you're commenting on bank earnings to, to look through the income statements, look through the balance sheet, and to find not much worth picking up on. Uh, but investors <laughs> have, uh, have given a big thumbs up. at The, the shares, uh, last time I checked, up around 3%, which is the best one-day move for UBS uh, since April last year. So, yeah, I think uh, the investment bank uh, was the standout this time. Uh, of course, um, UBS has uh, went um, sort of deeper and faster uh, th- th- than other banks in, in cutting its investment banking activities. And you can see that, that the trading business is now more resilient uh, than it used to be. And the investment banking performance, uh, the corporate advisory, was okay. Uh, but, but all told, if you wrap in that sort of pretty dominant wealth business, which, which had a couple of challenges, particularly in Asia, uh, it, it's a pretty decent performance. And just briefly, how does that compare with the Wall Street banks that we got reports, uh, second quarter reporting from in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, the Wall Street banks, um, of course, were all pretty good uh, from the second quarter last year. Of course, it was tough to keep up with that scorching pace of the first quarter. But uh, year on year, I think the, the, the average was about 12, 13%. And UBS is right in line with that, which suggests that uh, the measures that Ermotti uh, and co took a few years ago have paid off. Very good. Well, uh, long may it continue. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Ben and Nick here in the studio, uh, George Parker, our political editor down the line from Westminster, uh, and also uh, to Ewan Stevenson, the finance director of RBS. Uh, thank you for speaking to us. Do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer50. Uh, and remember, in the meantime, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly is going to take a summer holiday for the whole of August, but do join us again in early September. 
Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber. Until September, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.